I read an interesting post in um, a minister's Facebook page that I'm a Facebook group that I'm a part of. And uh, it was a little surprising to me because it came from an older gentleman. He's, he's got a doctorate in, uh, I think, theology. And so somebody I've, I've looked up to and, you know, uh, have enjoyed his writings. But, you know, he's a lot older than me, which, you know, puts him up there. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, there's some things that we don't necessarily always agree on, but I, I respect him uh, highly. And so he, he posted this and he posted it on his, on his uh profile page at all, uh, as well. He said, according to the Bible, and he put this in all caps, said, according to the Bible, winning the lost takes priority over edifying the saved. Uh, and I thought, okay, he's going to get some pushback. And he did. He got some pushback uh, from, from, some, from other ministers. But I thought, okay, I, I, uh, I, I wanted to read what his explanation was. And it had to do with, uh, with praying in tongues in a corporate setting, and he, he quoted Paul when Paul talks about, you know, if, if everybody speaks in tongues at the same time and somebody comes in who is an unbeliever, they're going to say, y'all are crazy. So he gives instructions about how to do it. And so based on that, he was saying, Paul gave priority to the unsaved and to winning them over edifying the saved. And I thought, okay, I, I can see that, you know, and I, I, I agreed with that. And so uh, I just thought that was interesting because not everybody believes that way. And that's why this series, that's why we are going through this series titled, and we're concluding it today, titled Rethinking the Church. Because as I study the books, the book of Acts, rather, which <clears throat> details for us the beginning of the church, I discover that in many ways the church today bears very little resemblance to the church that is described in the book of Acts. Why is that? That's a question that I want us to answer. Why is that? And what can we do to return to the exact purpose, that uh, purpose for the church that God led the early church to discover? And I think it's crucial that we rediscover our reason for being. Uh, this week also, I, was, uh, uh, I watched a news clip. Uh, actually, it, was, it wasn't a news clip. It was an interview on, on a news show. They were interviewing a, a pastor, a well-known uh, pastor with a national ministry. And, and he was saying uh, something like this. Uh, you know, we as a church have forgotten what it is to be the church. And he was promoting a book that he'd written, which uh, I haven't read, but I'd like to read. But as I heard him speak... Um, I thought, yeah, I mean, that's really what my concern is as well. We've forgotten what it is to be the church. And he got a lot of pushback for that, too. But I think it's important because the book of Acts was written by a historian. Luke was a, a doctor and a historian. And because he was a historian, he was very careful. He says, it, says this at the beginning of the book of Acts uh, about uh, how he was very careful to Theophilus, the man to whom he dedicated this, this book, but he was very careful to investigate certain things and details. So this is not like a blog. You know, when you read a blog, I don't know if any of you read blogs. When you read a blog, usually people just kind of write and write and write. And it's not really ever edited down like you would read, like you would read in a book. When you read a book, I prefer books to blogs because in a book, it's gone through a process of editing. The editor stepped in and said, no, take this off. Do, you know, write. 
whatever, and, and proofreading and all kinds of stuff. And so it's, it's more um, streamlined and, and I think more effective. And so the book of Acts is not like a blog that he was just writing things down, but he really investigated this. And so we have some very important details about the start of the church. And, and we know this, that basically, as we read the book of Acts, the church began in, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the followers of Jesus. And then uh, Jesus' followers then poured out into the streets of Jerusalem uh, with a message that Jesus had risen from the dead. And that day, 3,000 people believed the message after Peter preached that sermon. And they, these 3,000 people became followers of Jesus. Talk about a big launch, right? To start the church, a big launch. Within a month, the church had 5,000 people. And even, uh, as, or even more importantly, the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar over what was going on without, uh, you know, the benefit of social media, which you can cause an uproar with social media, right? But without the benefit of, of that technology, uh, the word got out and the entire city was in an uproar. Of course, there was resistance from the religious leaders of the day, just like there was resistance to this uh, older minister posting that and this younger minister on, uh, on, on a news show uh, talking about how we as a church have forgotten what it's like to be a, a, the church. The resistance in these two cases came from past, other pastors and religious leaders. In the book of Acts, the resistance also came from religious leaders, religious leaders of the day. In fact, they were so uh, upset about this, the religious leaders were, that they had the disciples arrested and flogged. And then... The worst case scenario, the unthinkable happened. Stephen, who was one of the leaders of this young church, was actually killed. He was martyred. And then after that, a full-scale persecution of the Christians broke out. That the, the, the murder or the, uh, yeah, the murder of Stephen led to this full-scale persecution. So the disciples left Jerusalem. They're being sought out. They're being killed. And they scattered all over the known world because of the persecution. But what happened is as they scattered, as they left Jerusalem, they went to all parts of the world. They took the message of Jesus with them. They began to tell people about Jesus, how he had been killed by the, the Romans you know, and the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders. But he had come back to life. And so they took this message uh, and it began to spread. Now, three years later, something absolutely amazing happened. A man who had been there at the first murder, the, the, the first martyr was Stephen. And a man who had been there when it happened, by the name of Saul, became the leader of the persecution. But he had an encounter with Jesus. He met Jesus in the road to Damascus and he became a Christian became a believer, not only a believer, but he became a preacher of the gospel. I mean, he began to preach the same message that had so angered him that he was hunting down followers of Christ to have them arrested. Now he's preaching that same message. So Saul became Paul and he began to plant 
churches. He took the message about uh, Jesus outside of Palestine, outside of Judea, and he began to spread it throughout the known Greek world at that time. Not just Greece, but Turkey and all along the Mediterranean rim. And for years and years, he he uh, traveled in, in this part of the world and everywhere that he, that he went, even to these Greek-speaking cities and, and primarily Roman citizens, he, he said, God has done something amazing. He began to just tell them in a way they, they understood, in a way that, that connected with them. God has done something amazing. God has answered the question, what do we do about our sin? What do, we be, what do we do about our broken rules? How can we have peace with God when we know we've broken His law? Whether it was a, you know, the Jewish law or the Greek law, Roman law, whatever their religion was. He was telling them, you can have peace with God uh, even though you haven't lived up to you know, whoever your God is to His expectations. God has answered that question. This is His message. God answered that question by sending His Son into the world. Great things are happening. Great things are happening. But meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, remember they all left Jerusalem because of the persecution. But now back in Jerusalem, there was a controversy taking place. And we're going to read about this in Acts 15. Acts 15, excuse me. Uh, and by the way, you're going to need your, your Bibles, so get them out and, and follow along. We're going to go through the majority of this chapter, Acts 15, beginning with verse 3. Here's what we read. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. Now here's a controversy. Let's talk about this because this controversy that we see here not only surfaced here, but continued to surface over and over again, really throughout the history of the church. And guess what? We're still seeing it today. I just gave you two modern-day examples of things that I saw just this week. And the controversy is this. Namely, who is the church for? What is the purpose of the church? Who is the church for? In other words, who should be a part of the church? Who gets in? How good do you have to be to be a part of the church? How many rules do you have to keep? How holy do you have to be? How much of your lifestyle do you have to clean up first before you can be accepted in the church? And what does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus? In terms of lifestyle, what does it mean? How good do you have to be? Now, Paul and Barnabas argued against what the Jerusalem leaders were saying. So they decided to go down to Jerusalem, which was the hub of everything, you know, Christianity at that time. So they went down to discuss this matter with all the leaders of the church. And look at verse 4, Acts 15, 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So Paul shows up in Jerusalem and he basically says, okay, I'm going to give you a report. 
uh, before we have our conversation, I just got to tell you what's going on. And he tells them, look, for the last year and a half or so, almost two years, I've been traveling around the Mediterranean, planting churches. And everywhere I go, Paul's giving this report, everywhere I go, Gentiles are embracing the message of Jesus. Gentiles. And when they embrace the message of Jesus, God does something amazing in their lives. And so we've started all these churches, but I haven't been telling them that they've got to clean up their act and become followers of Moses first before they become followers of Jesus. I haven't been telling them that. In other words, he was saying, I'm not front loading the gospel saying, well, before you get too deep into this, you got to become a Jew first. That's what it means to get circumcised, right? I mean, it, it means that we're circumcised physically, but they were basically saying you got to follow Moses and the Jewish law. You got to become a Jew before you become a Christian. He says, I haven't been doing that. I haven't been front loading the gospel to say, OK, here's some things you got to start doing and some things you've got to stop doing. Here's a list of do's and don'ts. And so we're going to give you about six months. Try this. If it sticks and if everything works out, then you can become a part of the church. Paul was saying, look, I haven't been doing that. So you guys are telling them to do that. And we're sending mixed, mixed uh, messages to the Gentiles. So we need to talk about this. We need to sort this out. And then verse 5, look at verse 5. Then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So immediately he comes up and he pushes back against what Paul is telling him. In other words, he's saying, you should have been telling them all along. You shouldn't let them get too far. Tell them right at the front. They've got to be circumcised to, uh, and required to follow the law of Moses before they become Christians. Now, here's interesting. Here's something interesting about this. Who said this? Verse five. Who said this? Some of the believers who belong to the party of the what? The Pharisees? Weren't the Pharisees the ones that had Jesus killed by the Romans? Yeah, that's them. What are they doing in this meeting? Well, apparently they had been saved. Right. God does the impossible. When Jesus said for with God, all things for with man, uh, all things are impossible with. But with God, all things are possible. When Jesus said that he was talking about salvation at one of the times that he said that. And so, yeah, here's an impossibility that God made possible. The Pharisees, many of them got saved and they started following Jesus. They believed in Jesus, but they retained their old ways and their old beliefs. They insisted that the Gentile converts had to be circumcised first before they could join the church. I guess we, now we see that and say, well, why, why are you doing this? We would say to them, well, maybe if we understood a little bit of their background. The Jews, remember, had the Ten Commandments. And then they basically had 600 other laws that they had been brought up all their lives, brought up to keep, and they, and they believed that Jesus was an extension of Judaism. They believed that Christianity, okay, they believed in Jesus. Oh, yeah, we, we can't deny him. He came back to life. We believe in Jesus. But they, they saw him and Christianity as an extension of Judaism. And this kind of made sense to them because, remember, he was the Jewish Messiah, 
And so they just assume that in order to become a follower of Jesus, you've got to become a follower of Moses. First, you've got to become a Jew. That essentially you had to become Jewish, which to them made sense because even Jesus, when he taught, he said this, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And the Pharisees said, see there? Even Jesus said that. It just made sense to them that you had to become Jewish and then you could become a Christian. But suddenly all these Gentile believers from all over this region that Paul had been going to, they found themselves stuck. Paul had told them that Jesus died for them and they could have peace with God through forgiveness and grace. Forgiveness and grace. But now these leaders in Jerusalem are saying, well, actually, it's not that easy. Not that easy. First, you got to clean up your act. You know, got to jump through a few hoops. You got to, before you can embrace Jesus, uh, become part of our church. You got to do this, you know, be circumcised and follow the law. Before you join our church, talk about uh, membership requirements. (laughs) You got to become circumcised first. That's one membership class that would have been all women. I think, you know, I think, honey, you go and check it out. I'll wait in the car. Let me know. Let me know how it goes. But they were saying, look, you've got to follow Jewish law first. Then you can be saved. Well, that meant that the Gentiles would have to follow 613 laws and have a surgery. Then they could be part of the the church. You know, know, a lot of people, uh, we're hearing a lot of people talk today about deconstructing their faith. Have you heard that conversation? Uh, Some well-known... Um, singers, artists, you know, Christian artists have deconstructed the faith and they've left the faith. Some of them have deconstructed and then they've reconstructed and they're stronger for that. But a lot of them have had just bad experiences and even even people who aren't like labeling it that way, you know, I'm deconstructing, but they've left the church. A lot of people that used to be in the church have left the church. Maybe they had a bad experience and and if they did have a bad experience, it might have something to do with the same conflict. The same conflict. And, and they might have been caught on really on either side of the conflict. Maybe they just decided to follow Jesus. But, you know, have you met somebody like this who they, they gave their life to the Lord, but they still have some rough edges. And because they have some rough edges, some people like don't want them in the church. Have you ever had that happen anywhere? Or maybe their bad experience was from the other side of the conflict. There were some people that gave their lives to, to Jesus, but their lives were really still messy, you know, the rough edges. And you wanted to allow them in, but you're thinking, but what about holiness? What about Jesus? What about Paul writing, you know, to come out from among them and be separate? Shouldn't we be like different and keep them at an arm's length? How do we reconcile grace and truth? You know, we understand the truth of God's word and we understand the, the standards for living. You know, I've always said, you know, there, there is grace, but there are still standards, right? There's still norms that we find in God's word. So we understand the truth of that. But we also understand grace, which forgives our worst sins when we repent. How do we reconcile the two? The thing about grace is this. When is grace needed? Where there's sin, right? So if you're going to talk about grace and we're going to offer grace, then that means there's going to be some sin there. 
But sometimes we want to offer grace, but not deal with the sin. Lord, send them to us all saved, healed, delivered, and tithers. That's who we want in our church. Just send them. We don't want to take them through the process. And so there is a clash between grace and truth. The Apostle John wrote that Jesus was full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus is is the embodiment, embodiment of this conflict that churches face all the time. He was the embodiment. He was full of grace and truth, except that he wasn't conflicted by it the way that we are. He knew he came to seek and save the lost. Uh, Listen and read the story of the prodigal son, which reveals the scandalous nature of God's grace without watering down the truth of holiness. But churches, we have a hard time dealing with this, with this conflict. Sometimes the attitude of the Pharisees can creep into the church. You've seen it. I've seen it. We want to keep people away until they prove they're like us. And uh, that's really, like I said, an old controversy. So let's keep reading and see how the early church handled it, because this is great here. Uh, We're going to read verses 6 through 11. So follow along so you don't get uh, distracted. Uh, Acts 15, beginning with verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, this is so important right here. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So Paul, is, as Peter is saying, look, this is not just a Paul thing. I've done the same thing. I've preached to Gentiles. I've seen God change their lives. Remember in Acts 10, when he goes to the house of Cornelius, he says, I've, I've seen God change the lives of Gentiles, change their hearts. I know that they believed. They were filled with the Spirit. They spoke in tongues. That's a report that Paul, uh, that Peter rather gave uh, to the leaders in Jerusalem about Cornelius in Acts 10. And then he has this question. Let's go back to verse 10 again. This is so important. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? See, this was the elephant in the room for the Jewish leaders. They grew up learning to go to the temple to offer a sin offering because they had sinned, because they had broken the law. So Peter is saying, look, guys, we can't even keep the law. We can't even keep the law, but now we're demanding the Gentiles have to keep it before they join us. See how hypocritical that was. And then we're not read all this passage, passage, but then James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, began to speak, and he speaks for a while, but I love the way that he concludes this in Acts 15, 19 now. Look at verse 19. Here's his conclusion of his speech. He said, It is my judgment, therefore, 
that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's it right there, folks. That is what I want us to embrace today. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Basically, James is saying, look, I've heard the debate. I've heard the discussion. I know we have a standard. We've got a moral standard. I know there are commandments and I know God is God and he's a God of absolutes. And I know Jesus is all about grace and forgiveness. And I know there's a conflict and, you know, we may not be able to sort it out. I know it gets messy because anytime you deal with relationships, it's messy. Relationships are messy. That's the reality of life. He says, but here's what I've concluded. Here's what James said. Bottom line, let's not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Why would we do that? They're turning to God. They want to serve God. They believe in Jesus. We shouldn't make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Anything that makes it difficult for people who have chosen to turn to God, we should just remove it. Just let's get rid of it. Let's not make it difficult. That's a powerful verse. I love that. If you don't mind underlining in your Bible, underline that verse. If, you, if you're in a digital Bible, highlight that verse and, and embrace, let that, embrace that truth and let that truth sink deep into your psyche because this is the way they concluded the, the matter or they resolved the matter. And this is how we can do it too. And it tells us some very important things. The first thing it tells us is this. The church is about people. It's not about programs for programs' sake. It's not about traditions for tra traditions' sake. And I'm a very traditional person. I really am. A very traditional person. But, you know, the church is not about traditions. It's about reaching people. And the implication, as I just said, the implication is that sometimes the church will get messy. Because people's lives are messy. And as we try to build a relationship with people that don't know the Lord, that's going to get messy because relationships are messy. Even Christian relationships are messy. Imagine we as followers of Jesus with somebody who is not saved, but they're turning to God. They want God. They, they're looking for God. But that's what we signed up for. That's what we signed up for. Because the church is about people. Secondly, the church is for people who are turning to God. The church is for people who are turning to God. You know, this Facebook post that I read from this older man, uh, AG minister, he, um, he's, he, I was surprised that he just so plainly said, you know, that the scriptures show us that we should prioritize reaching the lost over edifying the saved. But he also did say, look, we need to do both. And of course we need to do both. Of course we do. One of the things that God has called me to do as a pastor is not only preach and teach but uh, the scriptures, but the pastoral care to care for the flock, you know, to pray for you and to visit you when you're sick and to, you know, to bury your loved ones when they pass away, marry your children. Uh, because we and, and the, the, the weekly teaching of God's word is for edifying uh, the saints. And so we do both. But. What we're learning here when uh, James, James said, you know, let's let's not do anything. Let's uh, let's not make it difficult for people who are turning to God is that 
the church is for people who are turning to God. It's about reaching them. It's not just about who's already here. But it's about who's not here yet, but needs to be here because God loves them and God wants them here. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have family members that aren't here, that aren't following God, that need to be following God, and you're praying for them? Because that's what, that's what the church, uh, who the church is for. And so, you know, the implication of this is that the people who are turning to God are very much unlike us. Yet we have to embrace them because a church is for them to reach them. We, we call it different things. We call it evangelism. We call it outreach. We call it missions. But it's for people, it's reaching people that are very much different than we are, but we must embrace them. The third thing we can draw from, from this verse 19 is that the church must support people who are turning to God. Because that means, and listen to this, if they're turning to God, is that going to be an easy transition for them? No. How many of you know that when somebody makes a decision to follow God, that the forces of, of hell will come against that person? All of a sudden they're thinking, what is going on? You know, so it's already hard. And if we make it harder for them uh, to, uh, to turn to, to God by putting up rules and regulations at the front, you know, front loading this, here's what you got to do first, then we're going against God's will. I'm not talking about watering down the gospel, folks. I'm talking about removing man-made obstacles to the gospel. A friend of, uh, of ours, of my wife and mine, <clears throat> told us a story of how she, and maybe, I don't know if she told us directly or told it to somebody else uh, who told us. You know, these are uh, reliable sources. But I think she told it to us directly. At any rate, she told us a story of how she went to a, a certain church, visited a certain church, and, uh, and I don't know, it was at the end of the service, sometime in the service, a pastor welcomed her. I think it was a small church, and so... He knew that that was her first time. And the pastor welcomed her and told her this in front of everybody. He says, you know, thank you for coming. Welcome to our church. And he said, but if you want to come back next week, you're going to have to come back without your earrings. And I think a few other things that she couldn't maybe make up. I don't know. Um, but I mean, we used to be that way, way back. Some of you might remember. Uh, and these are man-made things that make it harder for people who are turning to God. In this case, our friend was already a Christian. But can you imagine somebody who wasn't a Christian getting told that? So we're not talking about watering down the gospel. We're talking about removing man-made obstacles to the gospel. So let's continue the story. Verse 20, Acts 15, 20. James says, instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, so, 613 laws. And James boils everything down to these two things. Try not to offend the Jews. That's the whole reason why, uh, you know, don't eat food polluted by idols. Don't eat you know, the meat of strangled animals and blood. He's basically saying, look, these Jews are trying to impose something that is not right, so we don't want to impose that on you. But at the same time, 
have a little consideration for them, right? How many of you know that's good advice? There's got to be some, some consideration for the people that are part of the church. We've been here a long time, right? Now, if I try to put up some man-made obstacles and shut me down, but at the same time, you know, don't ignore us, older folks that have been in church a long time. And that's what he's saying. He said, look, don't offend the Jews and abstain from sexual immorality. That's what he told them to basically boil down the two rules. Don't offend the Jews and abstain from sexual immorality. Wait, 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 James. What about lying and cheating? Well, I mean, we'll get to that. Okay, we're not going to burden with that. Burden them with that right now. We know that's that's a sin. But he just said, look, don't offend the Jews and no sexual immorality. Let's just keep it down to that. Be sensitive to Jewish brothers and sisters because you're going to be intermingling with them eventually hopefully soon, and abstain from sexual immorality. That's it. Come on in. Join the church. No surgery. That's all. So, verse 24. Verse 24. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good, listen to this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Goodbye. That's it. Farewell. That's the letter. That's the letter that they sent. And that's how they resolved that. Now, it wasn't a full resolution because, as we know, this keeps coming up. keeps coming up. But where does this leave us today? Because, as I said, every local church... And every generation struggles with this. It looks a little bit different today than it did when I was growing up in the 70s. It, 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 it looks different, but it's still there. So I think we need to understand a couple of things. We need to come to this understanding as a church. I'm asking you all as a church, those of you that are here, those of you that are watching that aren't able to be here and you're watching, you're part of our church as a church, remember, look at verse 2. that says that the apostles and the elders were the whole church. That's verse 22. So we as a whole church need to understand that in some ways, we've made it difficult for people to turn to God. We want them to look like us before they can become a part of us. And that's putting up a man-made obstacle. And secondly, we've got to get this right, folks. We've got to get it right because we're God's representatives here on earth. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Wow. We're God's representatives. We're the representatives of the Holy Spirit. This is a, a, an agreement you know, in, in between the church and the leaders, the whole church and the leaders, and the Holy Spirit. And if we get it wrong, if we get this part wrong, then lost people don't get saved. And, and I mean, you know the church has been wrong before, so we got to get this right. That's Here's a fascinating uh, uh, verse, something that Jesus told his disciples. He said, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. Remember when he told them, I give you the, you know, 
the, the keys uh, to heaven. And he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. What's he talking about? Is he saying that we have the ability to forgive sins? No, he's just saying we, we have the answer for the forgiveness of sins. And if we share the answer, then people get saved. If we don't, then they don't get saved. And if we're putting up obstacles to them receiving that answer, then it's on us, folks. It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to just seek God's direction on this. So I'm asking you today, can we take up this thought today? Can you take up this thought today? Don't make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Can you reflect on that this afternoon and this week as, as we move forward as a church? We are at a very interesting uh, time right now and a powerful opportunity. By having made this move, we, we have an ability, and it's not going to last forever, folks. In a few months, this, is, this opportunity at this level is going to be gone. So right now, we need to say, um, you know, I want to be part of a church that is not going to make it difficult for people who are turning to God. We've got to decide that today. Shouldn't we teach them everything that Jesus has commanded? Yes, of course, but we don't have to front load the gospel with that. So let me just finish with this story. My parents were pastors in Mexico in uh, Acuna, Ciudad Acuna. Uh, right before they moved to Texas. And they pastored a church that ended up uh, going through a huge revival, uh, which uh, lasted a long time, and many people were saved. I mean, I, I want to say hundreds of people were saved, including, my mom has told us this story, in, including some uh, women uh, of the night, right? Women of the night, some prostitutes that started coming to the service and, and they got saved. And, and it was just evident what God was doing and God was changing lives. And these, are, if I remember correctly, weren't women who somebody invited. They just started coming in because they, they knew something was going on in this church building. And, uh, and my, my mom says that they come in. I mean, they were, you know, wearing their work clothes, if you know what I mean, right? And they come in, this, I was just, this is Mexico, this is, you know, uh, the, the 50s, probably the mid-50s, I don't know. In, in Mexico, very traditional, and so I'm sure there was some pushback, but my mom says that they didn't tell them anything. They didn't say, no, you can't come in dressed like that. You got to go home and, and change. Because my parents believed, as the pastors of that church, they believed, you know, that as, as they come in and get saved and their life has changed, the Holy Spirit will deal with them. And of course, part of that is, you know, the, the teaching of mature Christians. And, and that's how it happened. But uh, you can imagine, you know, the temptation to say, this is God's house. You can't come in here dressed like that. But we talked about, you know, this is God's house because we're here as a, as a church. Anywhere we are, that's God's house because we are, as a church, we are God's house. And our bodies, individual, are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we as a as a gathering or a temple of God. So people could say, no, you can't come in here dressed like that. Let's not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. That's Bible. But we haven't always practiced that. So I want us, as we 
finish today, I want us to just determine that we're going we're gonna to embrace this thought and, and we need to figure out how it looks. How, how does it look at Solid Rock Church in 2022 here in San Angelo, Texas? What does it look like? We need to seek God. Ask Him to help us. Because we are the church. It's part of rethinking the church because I agree. We have in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways we've forgotten what it is to be the church. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Would you bow for prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have called us out out of our situations, out of a life of sin. You have brought us together as the ecclesia, the called out ones, the called out assembly. Lord, you've changed our lives. Father, I just, I can't get out of my mind the, the words of a young man that I knew who struggled with sin. And, and Lord, how I saw him a year or so later, and he was so different. And i never forget the words he spoke to me, dear God, when he said, Jesus saved me. He changed my life, and I could see it in him. You still do that, Father. And that's what we're about. That's what we as a church should be about. That's why we have a, a, a more spacious building. We're glad to have it, dear God, for not just so we can fill it up on special occasions or not just so we can say, yeah, we got this, but so we, this can be a hub from where we can go out and, and reach the lost. Our family members, our, our children who don't serve you, who need you. God. Let's not make it difficult for them to turn to you, God. And so I, I pray that you would help us. We don't, we don't always understand. And I, I certainly do, dear God, even as a pastor of this church. I certainly don't, I should say completely understand how this is going to look. But I just want us to be guided by that thought, by those words of James, who says, don't make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Because we want them to be saved just the way that we were saved, their lives to be changed. And so we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, except that it might get messy might, there might be some conflict. There might be moments in which we might be embarrassed because maybe somebody took advantage of us. I don't know, God, what it might look like. Lord, we want to follow you in your direction. I thank you, God, for this church. What a great church this is. It has been and continues to be. Thank you for their desire to follow you and their faithfulness, their love for you. Now, God, I just pray that you would draw us together to move forward, to reach the lost. Thank you for saving us. 